Well, Happy New Year. It's January. January is a time when we like to look forward. Look forward to a new year and look forward in hope. And hope that things will be a little better. That we will be a little better. It's been a long December, the Counting Crows thing, and I'm thinking maybe this year will be better than the last. And this year can always be better than the last in some way, shape, or form. This year can always be better than the last. So what are you hoping for in this new year? Did you make any resolutions in order to get there? New Year is also a time when people make resolutions. Some of those are formal. I will go to the gym three days a week at 6 a.m. Some of them informal. I'd like to be a little bit healthier this year. But we all make resolutions. Even the dogged resolve not to make a resolution is a resolution to stay the same. I'm not going to change. And I'm going to keep on with my life the way that it is. Well, I've got one resolution that I think that you need to add to your list. Maybe put it above all else. If you want a joy-filled 2019. And it's right there in verse 2 of Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits. If you want a joy-filled 2019, you need to bless the Lord and forget not his benefits. Let me pray for us as we consider this. And God, I do ask that we would remember the wonderful things that you have done. And that you would use even this time this service, and these moments in your word to come to us afresh in saving power and cultivate in our minds all that you have done and all that you are for us in Jesus. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. Well, memory is a powerful thing. It affects how we see ourselves and it affects how we see the world. It is an identity-forming and world-constructing thing, memory. Uh, And and stories help us with this, I think. Uh, It will come as no surprise to you that my favorite genre of film is chick flick. Uh, I like to call it chick flick. It's a kind of French deal. And, uh, and, you know, there's this wonderful chick flick. Uh, I don't really watch chick flick movies. Um, but I'm told that there's this wonderful chick flick, I'm told, uh, called In Her Shoes. I've never seen it, I promise. And I'm told that there's a scene, uh, because it's about these two sisters, Maggie and Rose Feller, never seen it, who are, have nothing in common, so I'm told. And... Uh, They're different in age, and the younger one is kind of a bit wild and crazy and doesn't have a lot of structure. The old one is like an A-type with lots of structure. But the thing about the film is that they remember their childhood completely differently. And there's this one moment where they're talking uh, with their grandmother because they were raised by their father, 
Their mother died earlier on. And as they're talking with their grandmother, um, uh, all of a sudden they see a picture of a dog and, and the younger sister remembers this dog and says something to the fact, of course I'm told, um, says something to the fact of, uh, you know, oh yeah, dad wouldn't let us keep the dog. And I was like, well, why wouldn't dad let you keep the dog, the grandmother asked. And it's like, well, because he was mean. And the older sister looks at her and it's like, that's not what happened. She's like, what do you mean? That's not what happened. He was so upset. He was upset because mom took us, you know, off to the city and he was worried sick about us and he didn't know where we were for days and he got back and there's this dog and he's so mad and then they got into this fight and, um, and he was talking about how she was going to have to go into a, a, a mental institution. At that point, the younger sister realizes that her mom uh, was actually bipolar, suffered from bipolar syndrome, and that she ended up um, killing herself a couple days later. But she had no recollection of this. She had a completely different understanding of her parents, of herself, of the world. And memory is a powerful thing. What we remember and how we remember it affects how we view ourselves and how we view the world. Memory is an identity-forming and world-constructing affair. So my question for you this morning is, what do you remember? And how do you remember it? What do you remember when the technology is turned off and the distractions cease. What do you remember? What do you remember when the pressure mounts and you feel like you are out of your death, depth and the breaths are short and the nights are long? What do you remember then? See, what we remember, it shapes how we view the world. It shapes how we view ourselves. And David, he knows this. He knows how powerful memory is. And so he says in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Forget not all his benefits. And why does David say forget not? Well, because David knows a couple things. The first thing that David knows is this, is that memory isn't just a passive act. Did you know that? We choose to remember. We cultivate memory. And so David says forget not, because the things that we think about, the things that we remember, we're not simply passive agents, but we can take an active role in it. And David also says, forget not, because he knows something about himself that he is prone to forget. And do you know that about yourself? Do you know that you are prone to forget? A couple weeks ago, I got sick, and... Um, I had this really, really bad throat sore that was going for, like, for days. And I was in bed for two days, uh, feeling pretty poorly. Um, but it wasn't kind of 
getting better. It wasn't getting worse, but my throat just hurt, like really bad. So finally, I get to Friday, and I call the doctor, and I'm going to go into the doctor, and you know, at this, it's my last-ditch effort because i got to preach on Sunday, so I'm like, fix me. Uh, and the, apparently a lot of other people had this because they didn't have an appointment till Tuesday. I'm thinking, okay, so I make the Tuesday appointment. I get through the weekend. I wasn't feeling great on Sunday, but uh, preach, that kind of thing. But of course, of course, by Monday afternoon, I'm feeling lots better. And at Tuesday uh, morning, I'm feeling uh, way better. Uh, so much better than thinking, I need to call. I make a mental note before 8 o'clock and the doctor opens. I make a mental note. I'm going to call the doctor to cancel this appointment. And then I go off on my day. Later on, I got some phone calls. And I didn't think much of it at first. I just got a phone call. It's, you know, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And tell the phone rang a second time. And then I realized I did not cancel my doctor's appointment oh, no, they're just there. Like, who is this? You know, and uh, of course, at that point, the guilt and the shame. And I'm like, I'm not the kind of person that doesn't show up for my appointments, you know. And then I believed the gospel and everything was okay. But <laughs> I called them and I said, you know, I'm sorry. And they're like, it's okay. But, you know, the reality is, is that like, when I was in desperate need, I was calling the doctor. But when I was better and healthy, I forgot. Very quickly, I forgot. And I think we're like that with God. We remember God when we need him, and we remember God when the tension's high, but when, when the pressure's released a little bit, we forget. We forget all the benefits of God. We forget as his children all that he has done for us and what it means to be his children. And what are those benefits? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits. Verse 3, who forgives all your iniquity. The benefit that David starts with is that if you are a child of God, you cannot outsend God's love. He forgives all our iniquity. And we forget. We forget that we have iniquity. We forget that we have iniquity, and that's why we feel so entitled, disappointed. We forget that we have iniquity, and that's why we think that, you know, God owes me something, and, and I deserve something. He owes me a happy life. He owes me success, a successful career. He owes me a family. He owes me. And we forget that God owes us nothing. God owes us nothing because we are his creatures. He created us. We were made for him. God owes us nothing because we are sinners. Because of an act of cosmic rebellion and mutiny, we tried to dethrone God. And 2,000 years ago, when we got the chance, we murdered the Son of God. What does God owe us? He owes us nothing. And yet, He forgives us everything. 
Bless the Lord, O my soul, who forgives all your iniquity. We forget that we have iniquity, but we also forget that he forgives us our iniquity. It's why many of us are working so hard as parents, as spouses, as students, as children, as employees and employers. We are working so hard because we feel like somehow we are going to be able to tip the cosmic scales through our work so that we will be okay. We can pay our debts. Are you working hard? Why are you working hard? Have you ever had a friend who would not ever let you pay or give them a gift? I had this friend like that. I was in seminary, and every time we went out, he paid for me. Every time we did anything, he paid for me. And, and when I was able, with lots of creativity and, um, and uh, heart through hard work, I was able to, like, pick up the bill. And he would figure out immediately how to repay me somehow. It's like he was constantly calculating the scores, always making sure he was out on top in all of his relationships. You know, we're all trying to make sure that we're out on top, I think, and keeping score in our relationships and in life, thinking that somehow, somehow we can, we can pay off. And we forget that he has already forgiven us all our iniquity. We forget this, and that's why we're constantly hiding and putting on false selves and false uh, demeanors and, uh, and, and kind of giving a false impression about how things are because, because we feel so much guilt and so much shame, and then we judge others and we spew shame out onto the world because we forget that he forgives us all our iniquity. And so some of us, you come in here and you bow your head, not out of reverence, but out of shame. Look up. Look up at me, Christian. And remember this. He forgives you all your iniquity. And not just some of it. All of it. All of it. In fact, verse 12 says that as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. You know, there are people that if I mention their name right now because they've been through public scandals, you would identify them with their sin. You're probably thinking of people in your head right now. That if I just mention their name, their name would automatically be associated in your mind with a sin. You know, a lot of us, we identify ourselves that way with our sin and with our failure and with our shame. God doesn't. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed your sin from you. God does not identify you with your sin. God sees you as his child. God sees you in his son. God sees you as righteous and holy and beloved. That's who you are to him. 
as far as the east is from the west. And David knows this because he remembers it in the history of Israel. In verses 7 through 10, David recalls the story of the Exodus. He says, He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. This is the self-revelation of God to his people. When, when Moses asked, show me your glory, tell me who you are, who are you, God? What is your character? This is how God revealed himself. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is how he revealed himself to his people. And do you remember the context? Because the context is key. He revealed himself to his people after he had, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, brought them out of Egypt, delivered them through the wilderness, brought them to Sinai, and do you know what they did? The first thing that his people did, they started worshiping a golden calf. And it's in that context, when the people are looking at being wiped out by God because that's what they deserved, that God said, this is who I am. I am merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Do we have any idea how mind-blowing this is? Israel is on her honeymoon. I mean, think about this. Young couple, they've been dating. They go on their honeymoon. They go somewhere in the, you know, tropics. And then all of a sudden, one of them slips off and has an affair on their honeymoon. And the husband or the wife catches them in the act. And they think it's done. And then the spouse looks at the other and says, I want you to know who you married. Your spouse, your husband, your wife is merciful and gracious. Slow to anger. And abounding in steadfast love. That's Israel's God. And David is saying, remember who your husband is. Remember who your maker is. Remember who your God is. Remember that you cannot out God's love. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, verse 3, and who redeems your life from the pit, verse 4. When David talks about God healing him of his diseases and redeeming his life from the pit, he most likely is talking about diseases that are caused as a consequence of his sin. See, not all disease and sickness and tragedy are a direct and immediate result of sin. But some are. Sin actually takes a toll on our bodies. Sin actually takes a toll on our relationships. And, and sometimes, even though forgiveness is immediate, the consequences remain. I mean, David knows this in his old, own life. He committed murder and adultery. Through that, a child comes, and the child died. Even though David pleaded with God to save the child, the child still died. But here's what David is saying. 
no matter how bad the consequences of your sin, no matter what the the outworking of them and how the destructive power of them, they cannot thwart God's loving purposes in your life and in the world. They cannot. That there are no consequences so bad that God cannot put all the pieces back together. That God can restore the years that the locust has eaten. And there's no such thing as a sin which ties God's hands. And David knows this. David knows this because it was actually through that adulterous relationship that God brought forth the Christ to save the world. See, Joseph's uh, Joseph's brother selling him into slavery to die could not thwart God's loving purposes. David's murder and adultery could not thwart God's loving purposes in the world. Israel's covenant infidelity could not thwart God's loving purposes. And you and I murdering the Son of God could not thwart God's loving purposes for this world, for you, for me, for the life of the world. In fact, he uses those very things to bring about his loving purposes. That's how big he is. That's how great he is. And you know what? One of the chief purposes that he has for you and for me is to make us like himself. That's why verse 4 goes on. God crowned you with steadfast love and mercy. The idea is that God loves you in such a way that he imparts to you his very own disposition of covenant loyalty and mercy, compassion and faithfulness. He's saying that these things will adorn your life. That your life will reflect his mercy, his compassion, his covenant fidelity to other people. See, some of you are entering into 2019, and you are entering into 2019 incredibly, feeling incredibly hopeless and cynical. That you could ever be different. You are coming into 2019 thinking there's no way that you will change. That there's no way that you will be able to have patience with others. That there's no way at which you'll be able to overcome addictions. That there's no way that you'll be able to act towards your employer or your employees or your child or your parents or your spouse out of love. In other words, you think there's no way I can change. One of, uh, one of my favorite authors, which I've mentioned before, and I've mentioned the scene, is the author Marilyn Robinson. And in her books, Gilead and Home, Home they revolve around this scene where the long-lost uh, prodigal son, Jack Boughton, comes back home. And the two ministers are sitting on the front porch, uh, And the two ministers are sitting on the front porch and they are arguing about the question of predestination. In the midst of this question, Jack asked the question, and while they're kind of wrestling with this conversation, Jack asked the question, can people change? And they kind of go all philosophical and start like talking as ministers do sometimes. And then... um, 
John Ames's wife, who's a recent Christian and not very educated, just looks up and says, people can change. People can change. You cannot thwart God's purposes of love in your life. And you can change. And I want you to remember in 2019 that your sin is not so great as to mean that you cannot change. Remember that those God calls, He glorifies. Remember that He who began a good work in you will bring that work to completion. Remember that your past does not determine His future for your life. Remember that your DNA, that your upbringing, that your personality, that your family history, they don't have the last word. God's love does. And you cannot thwart his loving purposes in your life. Remember that. And remember that you cannot outlast God's love. In verses 15 through 17, there's this contrast between humans and humanity whose days are like grass and whose existence is transient. And verse 17, the steadfast love of the Lord, which is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children. In other words, it's saying that you can't outlast God's love. And that means that God does not get bored with you. And God does not get tired of you. That God's love for you is constant and real. And if you are the object of God's love, then God's love must and will sustain you because it must have the object of his love in order to be love. And not even death can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. But we forget that. We forget that and we think that somehow if God doesn't give it to us now and his love doesn't provide for us now, then it will never provide for us. As if God's love is fighting a clock. God's love is not fighting a clock. God's love for you does not have an expiration date. God's loving purposes are not thwarted by your death. God's love does not work like the access card. Those of you who are new to Santa Barbara, you need to know about the access card. If you take anything away from the sermon. No, I'm just kidding. But it is an important thing. We have these things called the access card in Santa Barbara. And basically, just about anywhere that you would want to go has a discount. Most of the time, two for one. So you might as well use it because you're going to get your money back in like, you know, within two outings. But here's the thing about the access card. It only lasts for the year that it lasts. And so if you got the 2018 access card and you haven't been eating your ice cream throughout the year, you're going to be eating a lot of ice cream December 25th through January 1st, right? Because you got to use up your access card because there's an expiration date on that and you cannot cash in after. And even if you try, they will say no, right? You're like... Whoever it is, you will run into the person from the Seinfeld episode at the Soup Nazi. And amazingly, they work at all these places, right? And they will say, no, no discount for you. 
God's love does not work like the access card. God's love works like Brooks Brothers. So one thing that you may not know about me uh, is that in the past, I was a bit of a, a clothes horse. And I used to have, like, I ran about, I don't know, in, at the end of high school and beginning of college, I was running about seven or eight suits in, in my rotation. And I was wearing them, right? Because back then, like, I wore a suit to church every Sunday because I wanted to wear a suit to church every Sunday. Well, anyway, I found this suit on eBay, Brooks Brothers. I got it for 25 bucks. It did not fit me, but I got it for 25 bucks. <laughs> I got it shipped to my house. This is the early days of eBay. I get it, 25 bucks at my house. But here's the thing about Brooks Brothers. If you get a Brooks Brothers suit, they will do minor, all, like normal alterations on it for the life of the suit, which is forever. So I take, this, I take this suit into the Brooks Brothers, and this old guy who's probably been like working there forever looks at it, and he goes, and it's like, I mean, I'm talking about, it was, it was a seersucker suit, which was awesome. You don't understand it, but it's awesome. And not only was it seersucker, it was like had like, it was, it had a cut on the thigh, which will date it, where like the thigh was kind of skinny, but then it kind of bloomed out a little bit at the bottom. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. So I take this thing in, in like 2000 and, you know, 2000, into the Brooks Brothers, and the guy looks at it, and he shows it to the other uh, person who's working there, and they look at it, and he goes, I hadn't seen this since the 80s. I don't think we've made this model since 83. <laughs> he goes... But it's ours, so we'll stand by it. And they altered it for me. Wore it until a couple years ago. And uh, yes, I did. They stand by it because it's theirs. God stands by you because you're his. And there is no expiration date on his loving purposes in your life. You cannot thwart the purposes of God's love. You cannot outlast God's love. Finally, you need to remember that you cannot transcend God's love. Verse 11 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Now when it says as high as the heavens are above the earth, I don't think that the author is simply, I don't think David is simply referring to a quantitative difference between God's love, or he's talking about the quantity of God's love. He's also talking about the quality. Because you have to understand that ancients thought that the heavens, the stars, the moon, these things, they were transcendent. For them, they operated on a totally different periodic table. They were of composed of different stuff. And basically what it's saying is that like, God's love is so high, as high as the heavens are above the earth, that it, that it is holy of other, that is incomparable and incomprehensible. So that while we can experience it truly, we cannot comprehend it fully. 
This is why the Apostle Paul prays, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I mean, that's a paradox. I'm praying that you would know the love that is unknowable. I'm praying that you would comprehend the love that is uncomprehensible. See, what this means is that we cannot ultimately explain God's love, but we can experience it. What this means is that we cannot rationalize God's love, but we can revel in it. But we forget that. And we try and try and try to explain God's love. We try to, to say, God loves me because. God loves me because I do this. And God loves me because I do that. And God loves me because of my family. And God loves me because. Or, most often, we say, Surely God could not love me and does not love me because. Because of this and because of that. But you cannot give a reason for God's love. You cannot explain God's love. God's love, you can't get to the bottom of God's love and you can't say God loves me because, because God loves you because he loves you because he loves you because he loves you. Not even your faith is the rationale for God's love. Not even your belief qualifies you for God's love. Not even your decision to follow Jesus qualifies you for God's love. And if you want to know what Calvinism is all about, that's their tradition we're in, that's what it's all about. It's about this. He loves you because he loves you because he loves you because he loves you. And even your faith in him is actually a result of his love. His great love for you. And so, and so here's what that means. It means that you can't explain it. You can only sing, why should I give, uh, gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. And so don't try to judge God's love and don't try to judge God's love based on your circumstances because but you, you can't think your way through it. This is why God does not justify his love. He demonstrates his love. God does not plead, he points. He points to a hill outside Jerusalem where his own beloved son was freely given up for us all. And so if you want to remember all the benefits that you have, look to Jesus. It's because of his death for sinners that he forgives all our iniquity. It's because... Jesus sent his spirit upon us that we will be conformed into his image. 
It's because Jesus was risen on the third day and unites us to himself so that we who have the spirit of the risen Christ in us will be raised that we cannot outlast God's love. And it's because Jesus who loved us and died for us when we were his enemies, when we were sinners, when we were weak and helpless and we couldn't have no quality in ourselves. That's how we know that God's love is, is incomprehensible. And so stop questioning it. And start praising it. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obey the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord. He loves you. Amen.